Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Susan Burgess, who is the author of LGBT Inclusion in American Life, Pop Culture, Political Imagination, and Civil Rights. This was published in 2023 by New York University Press. And as I said to Susan before we started recording, I thank you for writing this book, Um, in part because it does a lot of work in explaining the role and impact of popular culture on our politics, um, which is a real thing um, and is something that political scientists and many others um, study uh, how politics is impacted, who impacts it. And the reality is that popular culture, which we all engage in all over the place, is something that is relevant to our study of politics. Um, So I'd like to welcome Susan Burgess to the New Books in Political Science and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this fantastic project. Hi, Susan. Hi, Lily. Oh, my goodness. Thanks for having me. And thanks for your kind words about the book. Um, That's a great intro. You're totally right. So a lot of people in political science think about politics as electoral politics or institutional politics or policy making. Those kinds of things are the more traditional ways to think about, you know, what constitutes politics. But obviously, especially right now, we are all swimming in popular culture and it's affecting politics and politics is affecting the shape of pop culture too, you know? So it's really important to take this into account. And that's especially important for um, subcultures or one could say counter publics like um, the LGBT community or like the black community, um, those kinds of things, because um, pop culture has had an important effect on shaping um, those communities and, um, the understanding that people have of politics within them. So um, I uh, am, in terms of who I am, I um, am a distinguished professor emerita from um, Ohio University in political science. I worked there for a long time, but now I'm working um, at DePaul University in the political science department. Um, And how I got involved with this project was I just, you know, I felt like, wow, we are all in the middle of transformative times right now. I wrote this book during um, the pandemic, you know, during the quarantine, I mean. We're all in the middle of transformative times right now. And I'm reflecting on that as many of us did during the quarantine time. Who are we and what are we doing here? Um, I started to think about not only am am I in a large macro transformation of politics, but also what it means to be um, an LGBT person has really been transformed in the last little while. And so I started to think about themes of political transformation um, in that sort of larger sense, you know, globally and domestically, but also in terms of what has happened to LGBT populations. And so at its most basic Um, What this book is about is um, how the American public came to accept LGBT freedoms uh, through the lens of pop culture, right? So there's lots of explanations about how that happened or why it didn't happen in this or that way through 
like traditional talking about public opinion or something like that, right? But I wanted to talk about um, how pop culture influenced that transformation. And it really is a profound one, right? So, um, you know, LGBT people basically were transformed into a new rights-bearing subject, you know, in the post-World War II period. And that is really a profound thing to have lived through and to have studied as a political scientist. So even more acutely, you know, within a period of about, I don't know, 12 years or so, LGBT people became free to have adult consensual sex without fear of state punishment to serve openly in the military and to marry with legal recognition. And that um, transformed the American, you know, populace in terms of its, its acceptance of LGBT people, but it also transformed the LGBT community too. So what I was interested in is not like how, you know, gay characters or something like that transformed mainstream thinking. So I wasn't interested in shows like Will and Grace or something like that, or Ellen, things like that. But what I was really more interested in was what um, straight or mainstream uh, pop culture um, had to say about issues like um, privacy or individual autonomy, family, sex and gender, and how that opened up, how that changed over time and how that opened up you know, made some space for LGBT rights in some ways, you know. Um, So that's what's going on in the book. And then the other piece that's going on in the book is how that affected the LGBT community, like what cost was there to that and how we changed and um, how we might continue to change in the future to continue to transform politics. So, I mean, you do have these two threads going on that not only – um, was the American sort of culture and and sort of political scene transformed over the course of 20 years, 30 years from, you know, the AIDS period forward um, by understanding, knowing, engaging with people who were no longer closeted. Um, and, and, but at the same time that this, very rich community that had been living not necessarily in the sort of center of American culture and politics was also impacted by this sort of acceptance and move and legal dimensions. Can you talk a little bit more? You've, you've mentioned it a little bit, but can you talk about these two threads that are sort of combined? Then we'll get into some of the more, more details of the chapters. Sure. Um, that's a really good and important question. So what the book is about in some ways, it's about LGBT stuff, but really what it's about more deeply is about the relationship between mainstream and radical politics, you know, and how in many ways radical politics is sort of like a mainspring of transformation once it comes into um, the mainstream. And um, so when that happens, so um Like a good example would be, you know, moving away from a reproductive sort of sexual ethic to one that is more um, based in non-reproductive thinking 
Um, and yet, what would that mean, you know, for to bring LGBT culture around those issues into the mainstream? Well, it's not going to be the same. <laughs> you know, that's not going to be a direct translation. And so the question is always when movements are successful in a mainstream sense, you know, what are they giving up in some ways? And so that's part of why I talk about um, Derek Bell, you know, one of the um, founders of critical race theory and Richard Eiten, who also worked in that area and with uh, pop culture, because they talk about how that worked, you know, for black counterpublics and for black um, subcultures. And um, they also talked about how, you know, these matters are not stable, right? So the transformations are not complete. Not everybody is included. And also there's backlash. Um, obviously, we're, we're you know, living through that now with many of the, um, you know, legislative proposals that are on the table in Florida and Texas and other places. And so um, I was really profoundly, you know, influenced by and moved by those authors and by people working in queer theory like Jack Halberstam uh, and folks like that who had a really different understanding of political time. You know, because when I study mainstream politics, I'm coming from the perspective of, a, you know, the school of thought of American political development, you know, and, and it's a good, it's a good school, you know, it's a good way to think about these things that there's times of political order and there's times of political transformation, you know, that's a great insight. And how does that work over time? So thinking about it in that way, um, you know, the United States has gone through maybe six or seven really profound political transformative periods. You know, we could easily think of these, you know, like um, during the Civil War, during the Great Depression or the Reagan Revolution, stuff like that. So what I tried to think about was, well, what would political time look like if it was, you know, let's say it was queered or just, you know, what, what does LGBT political time look like? And it doesn't look the same because interestingly, all these advances for LGBT people happen during a profoundly conservative political time. You know, so it's really interesting. So that suggests that LGBT or queer political time is a little bit different from uh, mainstream political time. Although what it has in common with that is, you know, the most basic thing is political ideas really matter because that's what new coalitions uh, arise around, um, coalesce around, and, um, you know, if they're successful, institutionalize around. And um, that can happen, you know, on the political right, on the political left, or even in these periods of um, profound transformation, even more profoundly in the hard right, like we're seeing right now. Um, so, you know, that's what I was interested in, and in thinking about, like, well, well you know, how does this work for LGBT politics? It's not exactly the same. And how can LGBT politics and our community maintain its radical edge, right? So the the motto, one of the mottos of the early movement was, you know, smash the church, smash the state. <laughs> that doesn't exactly align with, oh, please, may we have some rights. <laughs> please, sir, I want some more, <laughs> you know. So somewhere, you know, those accommodations have to be made, but without losing that radical edge, especially in this time, because we are in such a transformative time. 
You know, what it means to be a political subject will change, has changed, is changing, and will change for mainstream people, not just for LGBT people. And the shape of that transformation really depends upon our political imagination and future-facing thinking, you know, about what might happen. And that's really hard for people. Because when we're in a troubled political time, people think we're always going to be there. It's just, it's never going to change. It's always going to be the same. And that's just not true when we look in history. I mean, how did profound transformations happen, like through, you know, abolition of slavery or, you know, through labor laws, all this kind of stuff, right? So that's what it's about. And, um, you know, trying to find the, the, the intersection of uh, radical and mainstream politics is uh, pop culture helps us to do that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you 100%. Um, Excellent. <laughs> and because and, that's why I spend all my time, um, you know, sort of exploring the imaginary spaces that are presented to us through popular culture um, and that the narrative inside of the popular culture it often is more important and and less focused on, as you note in your book, um, than the representation, because um, the representation is often easy to point to, um, and and certainly mainstreams women in power or LGBTQ lives um, or you know black lives in you know how they are lived is is just you can have that in the the quote the Cosby show effect um, but that the narratives themselves which is what you really dive into in this book are important to think about because there we see this imagination space where, we are able to, as viewers, as audiences, as consumers, as individuals with imaginations, we can we can go into them and think about what that really is. So I wanted to pull you towards a little bit of a more of a definition of political imagination, because I think it's so important. Um, and also how you are sort of contextualizing that in this particular study. Yeah. Um, I think you, you and I are on the same page in terms of understanding that. So most primarily what I'm thinking of in terms of p- political imagination is what alternative stories can we tell ourselves about how politics works, what we want from it, what we would desire from it, and what we want from that for the next generations. You know, so... In pop culture, the way we could, you know, a shorthand way we could talk about that is it's world building. You know, when we talk about world building in pop culture, that's what we're talking about. Um, So that's why in that, um, not to jump ahead, but in that final chapter, um, you know, I talk about the queer founding in the show, the Netflix series, the acclaimed Netflix series by the Wachowskis, Sense8, because that's what that is, right? It has all the features of that as much world building does in pop culture. It has, you know, a certain kind of political subject that has some interaction with like how we see political subjects now, but it's very different. Um, It has different institutions. It has different, you know, enemies (laughs) and different ways to think about gender and sex norms, different ways to think about sexuality. Um, all that kind of thing, right? And that's common. 
um, in world building, the world building feature of pop culture. That's part of why I like it. It's so explicit about its narrative basis, you know, whereas in politics, uh, more mainstream politics, of course, that's always there, but it's just not forefronted so much. You know, you have to kind of tease it out like, okay, what's going on there and what's the narrative, you know, about. Um, so yeah, the story aspect is really important and the, the world building, because one of the things I found in teaching, you know, I've become more self-conscious about it too, in a good way, self-conscious in a good way, that we don't practice enough how to think about the future. And that, that becomes very stultifying in terms of what our political choices are, you know, and it's like a muscle, you have to work it to like make to help to make those things emerge in your mind and in politics uh, more generally. So, um, yeah, I think of political imagination like a story, like world building and like a muscle that has to be that has to be worked. Otherwise, it will atrophy uh, much to our detriment politically, because then we're stuck where we are, you know, and that's that's partly why people think we're stuck, because they can't think of other things. And, you know, what we have to say about that as political science is that's our own damn fault. (laughs) We don't teach people that we need to. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you because if you you know your standard your standard political theory class, at least the way that I look at it, you you enter into the republic and what is it that Socrates is doing? But world building, totally, (laughs) and it's totally radical. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, so I mean, that's the interesting thing too, right? That some people think oh, pop culture, it's sort of, you know, trendy or whatever, it'll go away or something like that. No, no, it's the basis of Western thought, you know, and probably the basis basis of other kinds of thought that I'm not expert in, but, you know, it is the basis of Western thought. And for stodgy, you know, more um, socially or uh, politically conservative thinkers who think of pop culture as not being relevant, uh, you know, that, that makes no sense for what they're studying in the ancients and so forth. So come on. <laughs> I I totally agree, and you know I often talk about Shakespeare, popular culture. Um. For real, and he really was. That guy was fantastic. You know, he was just like cranking it out. He was just cranking it out. He wasn't thinking about like, ooh, what's my image or all that. He was just an astute obs- observer of humans and institutions, and he also was in a transformative time. You know, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, he's a perfect person to study for this kind of thing. And for people to understand, it's not, you know, it is about like TikTok and stuff like that. And that's really important to understand that and how technology's changed and all that. But it's not just about that. So to really understand politics, if you don't look at culture, you're really missing something. You know, you're really not going to understand the totality of politics. So it's much to your own detriment, you know, as an expert to not understand what's going on there. And uh, pop culture is very demanding, you know, it changes very quickly and so forth. Yes, it does. (laughs) So so it's not so easy. And I understand that. And, you know, it's also like I'm, you know, becoming older myself. So it's, you know, one has to be careful about like there's some things that one doesn't really understand. But, you know, um, you we're as I said earlier, we're swimming in it and nobody's swimming in it more than, you know, um, like youth culture. So we it's incumbent upon us to understand this. 
Yeah. And, and it's also where more people, most people spend more time. They spend far more time, you know, watching television, going to the movies, playing video games than right. they do reading the New York Times or, you know, even watching Fox News or, or any of the places where you get the information, the political information, you're getting so much more information from pop culture venues. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's another piece of the transformation that we're all going through. So it's very demanding to be able to straddle, you know, those different kinds of ways of knowing and those different platforms. But, you know, there it is. That's where we're at. So we got to do it. (laughs) And, and so you use popular culture, um, artifacts in this book And you're talking about how they open up the space for a political imagination. Um, And as you talked about, there's, you know, this, these questions, bigger questions about like privacy and sexuality, as opposed to an LGBTQ character. Um, And so before we get to the civil rights part, um, so I wanted you to explain about what you're, what you're really looking at these these sort of components of narrative space that have shifted um, in your sort of overlay of political time. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. If one wants to um, gain political subjectivity and rights, which the LGBT movement, you know, does want to do. Um, If one wants to gain those things, one has to understand the contours of mainstream politics. And so what I was interested in was, you know, it's a puzzle in political science, even in traditional political science. Like, how did this change so quickly? Like traditional political science models cannot account for that, you know, like public opinion stuff. It just changed too fast, you know, quote unquote fast. And so I was interested in, okay, what changed in mainstream culture that made this more acceptable to people? Like not just it, what it became more acceptable, but what happened, you know, and I know what happened in the subcultures of LGBT politics. And there's a lot of different books about that, too. Um, But what I was more interested in was like, how did that space open up in the mainstream? And so I looked to, you know, mainstream artifacts of of pop culture in um, primarily in TV and uh, movies, uh, films and um, you know, to some extent and some plays and stuff. But um, uh, what I was interested in, yes, is like how did people go from being sort of more primarily community thinking in terms of their primary thought about where their responsibilities lie, like in Casablanca or something like that? You know, that's the theme of that movie. Like, does his individual desire rule him or does his, you know, loyalty to the bigger themes of battling Nazis rule him? You know, that's that's the that's the spring of that um, that movie. You know, so how did it go from that to like more profoundly individually based, you know, understandings? And what did that do to people, uh, you know, during that transformation? It's a great thing in many ways, but we still haven't, you know, exactly figured all of that out. And it left people, I argue in a kind of fog, you know, the way that people are in a fog after a war. Sometimes people have fought in a war. Uh, it's not entirely clear what they were fighting for or what they got out of it and, you know, who they are afterward. And that's what that's what I was trying to talk about in those war movies, that kind of um, change over time. More, um, probably more 
familiar to people is the James Bond series. And we think of James Bond, you know, rightly so as a misogynist pig and all that, but you know, he's not only that, right? So who James Bond is changed over time. Um, and, um, you know, how he thought about sex and gender, um, you know, he had to accommodate different changes that were occurring over time in mainstream society. And he did, his character did. And that made room for different understandings of um, gays and lesbians. And I argue, in the end, it helped us to understand that it wasn't gays and lesbians who were a threat to the military, but it was toxic male masculinity and the sexuality that goes along with that. You know, it's violence and it's, um, you know, profound spread, you know, and its need to always take over more, apparently. And that's, you know, spoiler alert, that's the, what happens to Bond too. Like that's, that's his ending as well, you know, and he, it's interesting to notice that Bond can't exist anymore in his old self. You know, he died. <laughs> I mean, they'll come spoiler up. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, come on now. It's been years. <laughs> I know. <laughs> They will come up with something else, but he, he, even like a franchise as powerful and as mainstream as the Bond franchise understands that that character in some ways, he can't go on in the same way anymore. It's just the world has changed too much. Now, you know, as we know from everyday politics, will there be retrenchment? Will power just give up easily? Heck no. No. (laughs) No way will that happen. You know, so there's going to be pushback and all that. And, you know, critical race theory and queer theorists tell us all about that. So it's not to be, it's not surprising. You know, it can be somewhat daunting, but it shouldn't, um, in my opinion, it shouldn't, um, you know, destroy people's hope for the future because, that's how power works, you know, and even in pop culture, that's how power works. But it doesn't mean things can't change. It just means you have to continue to keep developing your imagination so we can continue to move forward. So the question for the LGBT movement is, or one of them, is, you know, now that we sort of have some of these rights, now that the family has changed, nobody, you know, believes anymore that the nuclear family is, well, few people do, that the nuclear family is the only way to set up, you know, social life and all that. Again, what comes next, you know? And for the LGBT community, the the question is, okay, what's the next vision beyond smash the church, smash the state? Or what's the 2.0 version of that, you know? So that we can continue to expand um, the really interesting and different vision that um, LGBT counterpublics brought to the mainstream. Not to say displaced the mainstream, you know, but brought to the mainstream and changed it and changed it so much that LGBT people now have to we have to rethink our movement. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's sort of this this idea that of the the sort of fluidity and borderlessness, if you will, of mainstream um that that you know does in fact have has has been so influenced in so many ways by the lgbtq community by the black community by the female community um and and i'm not trying to suggest that all of the struggles have been the same because they have not no no um, and there's overlap too you know all yeah. that you know that 
Um, but that, you know, the, the idea of the quote mainstream culture as one that is, you know, inevitably hetero and inevitably white and, and generally speaking middle class, um, and reflecting the nuclear family kind of ideas is something that, that does not produce for us everything everywhere all at once. No, that's um, exactly right. well put. Well put. Um, and and even then, you know, as somebody who's been working on Marvel, which is getting kind of tame in so many ways, um, is also world building different perspectives. Uh, and and so I I think that your point is is so important to think about in terms of not only the mainstream being being shifted, right? And the culture therein being shifted that we turn on the television and we see all kinds of different things than we would have seen 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Um, obviously more channels too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that but that those who are contributing from the radical sides are also changed by that integration. And I know that there's, you know, there's often some concern about protecting the radicalness, the, you know, the sort of indigenousness of the LGBTQ culture or the black culture that is then adopted and, 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 you know, sometimes appropriated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, definitely we could say appropriated and, and, you know, I mean, rightly so there's lots to criticize in, you know, the process of becoming rights bearing the kinds of things that happen, right? Because that's what it means to buy into the mainstream, you know? And so the task is, in my opinion, to transform the mainstream, to continue to transform the mainstream, to make it more inclusive. Uh, you know, if people, not just representationally, although that is important of groups that are left out, but like, you know, the interests of people, of groups that have long been left out of the mainstream, like, for example, the poor, you know, like that, that kind of way. And so, you know, and things calcify over time, including the Marvel, you know, comics universe and all that. I mean, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, some of the worlds offered there are not satisfying, you know, like I love Wakanda, but you know, do I want a kingship? Not really. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't see that as, you know what I mean? Like, but I love it in so many other ways, you know? Um, so things can calcify, you know, and like, that's a question. It's a similar question for the Marvel universe. Like, how are you going to continue to do things that are really creative rather than just like cranking out stuff? Um, that is not, you know, it's not as edgy as it used to be because it's successful now. That's, you know, that's how it works, right? This is like our, our, uh, cycle, you know, in politics, in capitalism, like all that, you know? And so, it's a challenge for um, the way pop culture is produced, but it's also a challenge for, you know, counterpublics too, for sure. And, and you know, the things in LGBT community that were once the basis of the counterpublic, like bookstores or bars or things like that, that stuff, you know, largely, not entirely, but largely has gone away. So as the technologies change, the question is, okay, well, how will the counterpublic, you know, reshape itself? And, and that's exciting because then that makes us think, okay, if it is and if it can, then something else will come out of that. Some other, you know, for lack of a better word, agenda, political agenda, set of political interests that moves things forward, you know, for poor people, for old people, for uh, homeless people who are, you know, 
LGBT people working out on the streets, you know, like stuff like that, that that's not typically part of the conversation in the mainstream. Yeah. And, and, you know, we did see even some of that recently with regard to disability and, and, um, fat shaming and fat, fat considerations with around the Academy Awards and, and so forth. Um, and, and so you're absolutely right that they're definitely, you know, how do the communities that are not necessarily the focus or haven't become the focus, um, of mainstream and are still stigmatized or um, otherwise presented in derogatory ways, um, how does that, you know, get get yeah. sort of worked out and undone? I mean, there are very good books about this, too, that aren't about pop culture per se, but about like the neoliberalization of the LGBT movement, you know, like there's a book by Matthew Hinman on, on like how that happened over time that came out from Penn a couple of years ago. It's very good. You know, so we you know, it's a it's a mistake to over romanticize or idealize the past, the present, the future of the LGBT movement. You know, it is a subject to political pressures and, um, you know, capitalist uh, toing and froing as much as anything else is in our world, you know. So, you know, same with Marvel and all that, you know, it, it's not good to romanticize it too much. Or, or another way to put it is it's not good to love it too much. You know, <laughs> it really isn't. It's good to love it, but not too much because it's not a stable thing, you know. And that's I mean, the critical race theorists taught us that a long time ago, that these that these gains are not stable um, they're not all inclusive and maybe even they shouldn't be. That's part of what I love about in the conclusion about talking about sense that the world that they build is anything but stable. You know, it's just the, the, um, concept of transformation, the practice of transformation is built right into that. Like they anticipate transformation. They talk in that show about how LGBT people used to be, um, you know, put in mental institutions and stuff. Everybody thought we were crazy just because we thought a different way about sexuality, you know, and about how that changed over time, but how now people are doing that with trans people. What the hell? I mean, you know, it's like, come up with something new. My goodness gracious. Can you not even come up with some anti stuff that's more creative? No, we can't. So it's incumbent on us to come up with the creative response to these things and to not get um, despairing. You know, it's easy to get despairing. Everybody needs to take time timeouts. It's a very difficult, very demanding time. But, you know, what people from, um, you know, groups that haven't been included over time know is that that's, that's, that's power, that's politics, you know? So that kind of contestation is built in. And admittedly, we're in a particularly virulent time with very scary things on the possible horizon. But... Um, you know, people that are in these counterpublics, their lives have been threatened throughout, um, and if not directly, you know, as a people. So, you know, Jews, all kinds of people, we, we, we know that, you know, it's not this. That's part of what I like about Sensate, too. You know, when, when they're in the, um, the garden in Berlin in the Jewish Museum, the question there is, you know, is this an aberration or is this what humans are like? And the answer is this is what humans are like. You know, so get in the fight, you know, and, and even if you're an intellectual, you know, get in the fight in your head and like think some stuff up that can help people with this and teach it, you know, and, and practice it. That's what I think. I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about chapter three, 
um, in particular, dangerous pedophiles to respectable parents, television families, and marriage equality. Um, and, and again, you know, the sort of question of marriage equality back with us, the former vice president commenting on transportation secretary taking parental leave um, and, and somehow also attacking postpartum depression. Um, so there, you know, again, you're, you absolutely are correct in, in the space that the individual who was gay or lesbian was slotted, um, as, you know, aberrant or mentally disabled, etc. Um, and, and, and at the same time, we have moved forward to conceive of and imagine families that, are reflective of different combinations of gender and sexuality. Um, and, and so can you talk a little bit about how you saw some of these examples playing out in popular culture and how they contributed to some of the thinking about marriage equality? Yeah. I mean, I was just interested in how, you know, how profoundly, people's understanding of family changed. And what I use in that chapter, you know, as you know, Lily, is um, Leave it to Beaver, of which there are way too many episodes, let me just say. <laughs> Leave it to Beaver, 30-something, uh, which is, you know, like a late 80s, early 90s show. So right at the right when people are starting to come to terms with, you know, the economy is very unstable and, you know, neoliberalism, hmm, I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> you know? uh, and then um, The Americans, which is a you know more recent series and uh, which some people have seen and loved and some people just, you know, aren't even necessarily aware of because of the way that pop culture has changed now, like it's more you know siloed and stuff. But what we see there are really three different, you know, very distinct understandings of family. So one is like sort of the, the nuclear family, but even Beaver can't keep it all together, right? There's cracks and, you know, it's disdain, the things that aren't like the nuclear family, but they exist there. They're trying to shove them back into the hole, you know, and the parallel for gay people of that time, you know, would um, be, you know, very similar. Like people are just trying to shove gay people. And we were doing that to ourselves back into the closet too. You know, we were doing it to ourselves also because of the pressures and disciplining of society. So there's a distinct parallel there with, you know, what's going on in Beaver. Like, oh my God, the, ho the homosexual is, you know, so dangerous to the nuclear family. Like, and it's, you know, in line with the communists and it's going to take down the state and all that, you know, hence the very serious material consequences of being purged from you know, homosexuals being purged from the State Department, which um, David, David K. Johnson has written a very good book about called The Lavender Scare. It's a few years old now, but it's excellent. Um, and um, so by the time we get to 30-something, you know, in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, people still kind of desire that nuclear family. It's a very transformative period, but they know they can't get it. So how are we going to deal with this? You know, and how are we going to deal with women's growing power and, you know, like childcare and all these issues like that you, that you raise yourself, you know, in the, when you ask me the question and um, the answer is, it's really like, you know, people used to say about 30 something, it's really depressing and hard <laughs> and anxious making. Um, and then we get up to the uh, Americans, you know, in the contemporary period. Oh, let me just go back for one second to the 30 something. So 
you know, they have gay characters on that show, kind of, you know, they're very tragic gay characters who die of AIDS and stuff like that, which was very common in the period, but they did represent. And that did, you know, they were opening up like that. Okay. The nuclear family, like it doesn't work anymore. Like that was their parents were the, you know, the epitome of that. And it just doesn't work for them anymore. And then in the Americans, it's like, wow, that family is completely constructed. It's constructed by the KGB, but it looks just like a suburban facade. I know. Like, wow. So anybody can do that. <laughs> you know, at least for a while, anybody could put that show on, you know, like you could, you could become a nuclear family, even if you're like not really about it. And and what's interesting about that show is they get really attached to their kids, you know, obviously. And, um, you know, the kind of sex and all the things that they engage in. Oh my God. Like if that's what's going on in your neighbor next door, who the hell cares about those LGBT people? You know, that's nothing. That's child's play. You know, so, you know, I think we can see how that works over time, but, but we still don't know like, okay, but, but what, that's the deconstruction of the family. What's in the future? You know, what is in our future that way? And, um, you know, that's for, this generation, you know, coming up to determine. That's not for us to determine exactly. We can talk about it. We can think about it. We could try to imagine it with them. But this this really interesting thing happened. If we have a minute, for my in my class in my class the other day. Okay, so I was teaching about um, some pop culture things and and um, also First Amendment. And we happened to be talking about um, the Parkland kids. You know, it was the day after the Michigan State shootings. And somehow, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but somehow it became clear to me that every student in that classroom knew what the safest space in the classroom was, which was, you know, a certain corner that was most far away from the window on the door. It was also clear that they had all thought about it in advance of my asking that question. And it was also clear that I had no idea. Do you know what I mean? So I, that's a great metaphor for looking to the future. Like we can think, we, you know, older people can think about some things. We have some skills to teach them about how to build imagination and so forth. But their traumas, their ruptures, their political ruptures, their experiences are different from ours, right? So in my generation, you know, the AIDS was quite profound, you know, because what, what the LGBT community learned was about that was, yeah, a lot of the mainstream really doesn't care if we live or die. You know, so you have once you understand that you have a different take on mainstream politics and how to deal with it, you know, and how to how to um, arrange yourself so you can get its benefits, but also how to not love it, you know, because it has those limitations. Well, the kids now they they have ruptures, they have traumas, but they're different ones, you know, uh, and some of it has to do with the shootings, the regular shootings and stuff. Some of it will have to do with like how they process the quarantining and all that and, and other things, you know, as well. The, the you know, the giving out of money, the, the social payments, you know, during the quarantine and all that, that has changed everything. And, and that's for them to say. So what will the family look like? Well, those kids are fluid, man. Yeah. Fluid in terms of their sexuality and gender. It's not yep. one thing. So they've already got that down. That stability isn't exactly the goal, you know, and that that's a profound shift. You know, it's not like, oh, tell me what's after the nuclear family. They're they're, they're going to find out. They're going to figure it out. They're going to do it. But it's not their goal is not to find this stable thing that they are and then just sit on it. You know, that's different. It's good. It's interesting. 
Yeah, I I recently saw an article about how many teenagers indicate that they are gender fluid, not not bisexual, not necessarily gay or lesbian, but gender fluid. Um, and, and that's just like where they put themselves. Um, and it's so different from like a binary or trinary kind of world that, and, and that's just the way it is. And it's like a different, it's like a different dimension. Yep. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, they've created their own multiverse. Right. Um, That's it. And 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 the, and that's just fine and it's great because it does make things less like siloed and stuck. Um in a in a way, I mean that's kind of what you're talking about in the entire book is that you know the political imagination allows us to move beyond oftentimes black and white or you know simple binary um and and move into a space where we can consider what a different thing would be like and how how that would look and what it would feel like if we let ourselves go there yeah that's exactly right and and one of the things i wanted to do is you know that's like a basic teaching of queer theory right but i didn't want to write like a very sort of scholarly you know turgid take on queer theory and stuff what i wanted to do is show how it worked and show how we're already doing that. So queer theory isn't like something out there, critical race theory. I mean, it is. It's a it's a theoretical position. You know, it has like different parts to it and so forth. But we're ready. We're ready living that like in our pop culture and in our lives. You know, the kids are living that. And so, um, you know, it won't do to just try to retrench people. People can try to do that, but it is not going to hold because <clears throat> it's a little bit excuse me, it's a little bit like representation. Once the toothpaste is out of the tube on representation, it's over. You can't stick it back in. You know, you're not going to have a Macy's Day Parade with all white people in it anymore. You know, it's not happening. So, um, you know, it's very similar, I think, in terms of practices, political practices too. Like people are already practicing these things. And so, I mean, we can know that for sure because the, the pop culture wouldn't make sense to them. If, if they weren't already practicing it, it has to have some, you know, alignment with what's going on in people's lives. Otherwise, people wouldn't understand it. Yeah. So, Susan, this is yeah. a magnificent book. I love it. Oh, thank you, work- you so much. What are you working on now? <laughs> so <clears throat> I'm working on a book um, on the case of Obergefell versus Hodges which um, is the marriage case, the case that nationalized marriage rights for um, LGBT people. It's going to be a short book, like probably about, you know, 150 pages or so. Um, Unfootnoted, just a little bibliographic essay at the end. And what it's about is stories, the story of this case, the story of the two people who were the, um, you know, the named plaintiff and defendant in the case, um, James Obergefell and Richard Hodges, who I came to know when I lived in Ohio. I live in Chicago now, but when I lived in Ohio, I came to know them and I interviewed them. And what's so interesting about them is their personal stories align with what was going on in politics at that time. So Jim Obergefell, you know, he slowly came out. He was raised Catholic, he, you know, in, in a some conservative community in Ohio and so forth. He goes to college, you know, he meets some people like he slowly comes out and so forth. And then he, you know, marries this guy 
Um, you couldn't get married at that time legally in Ohio. So they got married in uh, Maryland on a plane when his partner, Arthur, was, um, you know, in his last months. And so it's a story about like how Obergefell changed over time, just like the LGBT movement changed over time as it developed, you know. And then Hodges was a Reagan Republican. Um, and, you know, it's a story of how he developed into you know, his Republican self as, as Reaganism was on the rise and so forth, and how he became disillusioned with the Republican Party in the turn towards Trump. And he was very, he, he is still very upset that his name is on that case because he doesn't want it memorialized that he was trying to defend, you know, um, he was against the um, same-sex marriage laws changing because he's not. So it's really interesting. They're like exemplars of the stories of politics, the competing stories of politics that were happening at that time. So that's what that book is about. It's about the case, but it's also about like through these two guys and their stories. So I did extensive interviews with them while I was still in Ohio and stuff. Yeah, it's going to be a cool book. I'm really excited about it. Well, I hope you will come on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about it when it comes out. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. So absolutely. For sure. I totally um, I love that you're doing the, the podcast. I think it's a great service for us all. And everybody should go out and buy your book on the um, Marvel Comics universe, too, because it's thank fantastic. You. It's fantastic. <laughs> Very proud of it. Um, and thank you for the high praise for the New Books and Political Science podcast. Sure. Uh, I want to thank Susan Burgess not only for praising me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But for joining me today on the New Books and Political Science podcast to talk about LGBT inclusion in American life, pop culture, political imagination, and civil rights, published by NYU Press in 2023. I believe this is part of a series that you edit, Susan. Yes, I edit. With, I, I co-edited it with um, Heath Fogg Davis, uh, who's um, at Temple. Yeah, and we're really interested in more people coming into the series who are doing. Um, you know, similar kinds of work, in, but in all areas of political science. So we have some really super like positivist empirical stuff in there, ranging all the way to the, you know, super um, like cultural studies, critical aspects of it. So yeah, come on in, come on in. It's all about <laughs> transforming the discipline and um, trying to think up new ways to imagine politics. Well, thank you for joining me today. I assume one can buy this book at the NYU Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store in your neighborhood you want to give a shout out to? Oh, sure. Um, so on a bridge where I live in Chicago, uh, my favorite bookstore in Chicago, well, I have two. Um, one is on a bridge bookstore, which is on um, like Broadway near Belmont. That's a queer bookstore. I mean, it's, it's a mainstream bookstore. Like they're a reader's bookstore. It's so fabulous in there. I just love that bookstore so much. And they also have a queer section. And so they have a lot of books, including some scholarly books, you know, so it's a great place. And then the other one in Chicago is the iconic um, Women and Children First, one of the, you know, remaining feminist bookstores. And it's that's over on uh, Clark, um, just north of Foster. So, yeah, go get a copy, man. <laughs> Keep books alive. <laughs> Keep books alive. And bookstores. <laughs> and bookstores, indeed, indeed. You know. Thank you so much for joining me today. Ah, Thank you. Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you.